We can all describe the details of the first car we drove, but we can't remember where we parked the car we drive now. What makes certain things stick in our memory? You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Pulse of American Healthcare. I'm your host, attorney and Dr. Bruce Bloom, President and Chief Science Officer of Partnership for Cures, a nonprofit that drives cures to patients through repurposing current therapies for new uses. And my guest is Dan Heath, co-author of the best-selling book, Made to Stick. Dan lives in Raleigh, North Carolina. Dan and I are discussing what makes certain ideas sticky and others not, and how this might apply to a medical practice. Dan, welcome to ReachMD. Hey, thanks for having me. When did you and your brother Chip publish Made to Stick, and what bestseller list has it made? The book came out January 3rd of this year, and we've been fortunate enough to hit New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and Business Week bestseller list, which is kind of beyond our wildest dreams for it. How did the two of you get this idea, and what background do you have that makes you experts in this field? Well, my brother and I came from very different places. He is a professor in the business school at Stanford, and he'd been doing some some very interesting research on the marketplace of ideas and how fundamentally unfair it seemed. We all have this illusion that, that when ideas compete, the truth wins out. And in fact, there's a lot of evidence that it doesn't always happen that way. And, and you don't need to look any further than urban legends for proof of that. You know, we all know the, the crazy legend of the person who has their kidney stolen and they wake up in a bathtub full of ice and all that. Great example of truth not winning out. That's a false story. I was coming from the education side of things. I had started a textbook company called Thinkwell, and our mission was to reinvent the way the college textbook worked. So we invented from scratch new biology books, new calculus books, new government books, with the hope to make the concepts more concrete, more interesting, more, more human in a lot of ways for, for college students. And so we were both approaching the same fundamental idea, which is, you know, how do you communicate effectively? How do you make your messages stick, but from very different angles? And, and I think it was, it was nice to have those two different angles as we collaborated on this. So what are the main concepts of Made to Stick? We've done a vast study of successful ideas, everything from Aesop's fables to proverbs to ad campaigns to lessons in school. And the great unexpected finding that we had was that all of these successful ideas, which are very different in content, share traits. They have things in common so that you can spot the same trait in a successful conspiracy theory as in a successful public health lesson. And so what we've done in our book, Made to Stick, is we've identified what those traits are. There are six of them. And we show people how to use those traits in their own ideas. So one example, one of the traits is unexpectedness, which is associated with grabbing the audience's attention. And so if you think about an urban legend like you only use 10% of your brain, the real heart of that urban legend, the reason why it's sticky, is because it's unexpected. We we never would have thought we only use 10% of our brain. And of course it's false. But it circulates because of that. Now, from an everyday standpoint, what that coaches us to do is, is when we're making a PowerPoint presentation, it's very easy to frame our language in a way that just seems like common sense. You know, so many times I work with organizations and, and see presentations that just seem like the same old, same old organizational speak. And what we know from the study of sticky ideas is if you want to get people's attention and get them to remember your idea, you've got to show them what's the uncommon sense. You know, what is it that you're saying that's different from what they've learned before? Because if you tell someone common sense, and it sounds exactly like what they already know, why in the world would they spend the energy to remember it? That's what the book is all about, helping to coach people how to make their ideas more effective by using these six systematic traits. 
and you use the acronym SUCCESS without the last S as a mnemonic for remembering what these six principles are. So I've read the book, and I remember. So the first one is SIMPLE. To me, that seems like one of the most difficult things to do. Tell us a little bit about making an idea simple. You're exactly right. It's the hard one of the six. And the reason it's hard is because what we mean by simple is prioritizing, not dumbing down. It's, it's not about creating sound bites or you know, using monosyllables. It's about choosing between the ideas you need to get across to respect the bandwidth of your audience. And, and so an example is in the 92 presidential campaign, Clinton was a candidate who had positions on all sorts of different issues, health care, the economy, trade, everything in between. But in a campaign, you've got to be focused. You've got to keep discipline on your messages. And so Carville famously challenged the campaign one day. He wrote on the campaign whiteboard and headquarters, it's the economy, stupid. And that was a reminder to them that, look, we may have opinions on lots of issues, but to be effective, we've got to be simple. And the core issue in this campaign has got to be the economy. And so let's not go off on tangents about foreign policy with Tanzania or, you know, minute free trade issues. Let's remember, people are going to show up to vote because of the economy. We've got to respect that. That's what simplicity is all about. Well, the simplicity idea brings us to one of the parts of the book that struck most with me, the curse of knowledge. What is that, and what does it have to do with sticky ideas? The curse of knowledge is a psychological bias that was discovered in in the early 90s. And basically what it says is this. The smarter we get about things, the the more experience we acquire, the more skills we acquire, two things happen. One is good. One is we get better. We get smarter. People come to us to solve their problems. We get promoted. We get more money. That's all goodness. Simultaneously, though, what's happening is that there's a gap opening up between us and the people that we need to communicate with. And the gap represents the fact that it's becoming increasingly hard for us to imagine what it's like not to know what we know. An example is if you've ever had the IT person in your office come over to help you with some kind of problem, you've been on the other side of the curse of knowledge. So you just want to know what button to click, right? And they're concerned with back-end databases and OS and IP addresses, and none of that makes any sense to you. You just want to be able to click a button. Well, guess what? The curse of knowledge thrives best in atmospheres where there's lots of technical knowledge, where people stay around colleagues with similar levels of knowledge for lots of years, and where there's lots of kind of specialized vocabulary. that sound familiar to any of the listeners out there? Absolutely. And if they've just tuned in, they're listening to The Pulse of American Medicine on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Bloom, and I'm speaking with Dan Heath, co-author of the best-selling book, Made to Stick, about how these concepts might work in a medical practice. So let's follow up on that and take you right to a doctor talking to a patient. You just described the medical setting where we spend all our time with our colleagues. We get incredible amount of knowledge and we use all sorts of technical language to describe it. And then it's time to talk to our patient about what their treatment options are. So how would we use the Made to Stick principles to make these conversations work better for our patients? I think the IT person analogy is actually a helpful one for this. So imagine that you do have a problem with your computer. You call over the IT person. Now, they know a lot of stuff that's going to help solve the problem for you, just as doctors do. But it's not useful for them to explain the problem in terms of their expertise because you can't possibly catch up to their level of knowledge in the, in the scope of one conversation. So what they've got to do is meet you on your terms. You know, what do the users of a computer understand? They understand programs. They understand 
clicking buttons. They understand, you know, toggling between programs. What they don't understand is any of the underlying infrastructure. And so if you're going to be an effective IT communicator, you've got to filter your ideas and, and put them in the concrete terms that your audience understands. It's exactly the same process for doctors. Doctors have an amazing wealth of experience. I mean, just your schooling alone for a decade plus whatever experience you have on the job, there's no way you're going to bridge that gap in the span of a conversation. So the way to handle it is put your advice in the day-to-day terms of your patients. And, And I think lots of doctors do a quite good job of this. They ask questions you can understand. Has your heart been beating fast? Does your head hurt? When I press here, does that cause pain? That's exactly the right approach. I think when it gets complicated is when you start to explain what the ailments are, what the diagnosis is. And I think you've just got to remember that, you know, a lot of people don't even have the most rudimentary understanding of of how their body's parts fits together. And so you've got to be very conscious of, of kind of remembering what it was like when you first went into medical school you know, not knowing where the pancreas was, and trying to translate that into terms that a patient can get. So let's run through each of the six principles of stickiness and see how this might apply to these doctor-patient conversations. So we sort of covered the first one, which is simple. So you're talking about using simple language, simple concepts, asking simple questions. Do you have examples from the book where this is really important, simplicity? Simplicity is really important for any idea. It's the one absolutely essential element of stickiness. And for useful simplicity, think of proverbs. Every culture has a set of proverbs, like a bird in hand is worth two in the bush. There's some version of that exact proverb in virtually every language. And what proverbs do is they encode a huge amount of information and moral guidance into a very short, memorable phrase. And that should be our aspiration for simplicity. It's not that we're dumbing down like a soundbite. It's that we're trying to find ways to encode big truths into short phrases, just as Proverbs do. And the second concept is unexpectedness. And where might this apply in a conversation, for example, where a doctor's telling a patient, if you don't lose weight, you might end up with a heart attack? I think in a lot of cases, unexpectedness is intended to grab attention. And so in a lot of cases, I'm not even sure a doctor needs to worry about this one because I think you do have your patient's attention. I think it's only in the lifestyle situations, like the one you brought up, that it might be relevant. And I think, you know, a lot of people have a kind of blasé attitude about diet and exercise. And so I think if you you had access to some findings that made it clear, you know, look, I remember the famous statistic that was publicized eight or ten years ago that, you know, every cigarette you smoke takes seven minutes off your life. And I think that has some serious statistical flaws as a principle, but it's a great example of unexpectedness. It's it's a great example of how to kind of shock someone by saying, look, these are not little actions you're taking. They're potentially life-threatening actions that you're taking. Well, credibility is probably not an issue for most doctors in their communications with patients, but what about concreteness? Concreteness is huge, and I think this is where doctors could perhaps benefit the most. Just think of the way that you've learned uh, in diagnosing patients to do things like, you know, you press on their chest. Does this hurt? Breathe in. What do you feel when I do that? That is all classic examples of concreteness. And concreteness just means putting things in sensory terms, things that people can visualize, things that people can experience. And so the opposite of concreteness is abstraction. And a lot of times I tell a joke on doctors. I flash up the words idiopathic cardiomyopathy. Probably people listening to this know what that means. Most people don't. And so I explain it for them. I say, well, cardiomyopathy means there's something wrong with your heart. 
Idiopathic means we have no clue what it is. And that's a great example of an expression that is fundamentally non-concrete. Idiopathic cardiomyopathy means a great deal to a doctor with 10 years of training, and it's completely opaque to a patient in an office. We all remember the details of the Darwin Award winner who strapped the rocket ship to the roof of his car and then blasted himself into the side of a mountain. Why are those details locked in our brain? I want to thank our guest, Dan Heath, co-author of the book Made to Stick, for helping us see how made-to-stick concepts might work in a medical practice. I'm attorney and Dr. Bruce Bloom, President and Chief Science Officer of Partnership for Cures, a nonprofit that repurposes existing treatments for new uses. You've been listening to the Pulse of American Medicine on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening. <laughs>